If you want to convince half the country elections are safe, secure, and not rigged, the best way to do that probably isn't to attempt to imprison a former president for saying otherwise. Not helpful, not right, not American. I'm going to give you my take on all of it right now. What do you know? Another indictment for Donald Trump, because why not, right? I'm not shocked, you're not shocked, but I'm pissed off and you should be too. This whole thing is once again a steaming pile of politically weaponized dog crap designed and manipulated to not only take down Donald Trump and interfere in the 2024 election process, but also intimidate anyone from ever having a legit discussion on election integrity and voter fraud ever, ever again. Only Democrats can question the legitimacy of an election. Right, Hillary? Right, Stacey? You can run the best campaign. You can even become the nominee. And you can have the election stolen from you. I believe he knows he's an illegitimate president. There were a bunch of different reasons why the election turned out the way it did. I did win my election. I just didn't get to have the job. We were robbed of an election. And so in response to what I believe was a stolen election, and I'm not saying they stole it from me, they stole it from the voters of Georgia. Facts went outside asking if I'm ever going to concede. The answer is no. <laughs> Weird. No indictments for beautiful Hillary or Stacey Abrams or Hakeem Jeffries or any Democrat who has ever cried rigged election. Just Trump. And whether you like the guy or not, whether or not you believe he's full of crap in his assessment of a rigged election in Fulton County, just look at these so-called violations. I mean, come on, man. Act 22, Trump tweeting about watching OANN. Act 57, reserving a room for a meeting. Act 6, asking for a phone number. And RICO charges, really? Call Trump what you want, but he's not a mobster. He legitimately thinks he won the 2020 election, and you don't have to agree with it, but you don't jail the man for the rest of his life for challenging a vote count. Was he sloppy about it? Maybe. Was it the best way to go about it? Probably not. But to wait two and a half years and then dump this on him? Stevie Wonder can see this is politically motivated. Well, that and the fact this is indictment four. And now here we are again. What's happening is clear as day. You don't have to win on policy or record when you simply lock up your political opponents and intimidate any other detractors from speaking out when you drown your opponents in legal fees and proceedings and make the entire process about investigations and indictments and not on the havoc your party has wreaked on this country, a country Donald Trump brought back from the brink just so you could destroy it again because honestly, you hate it and you hate us. The Democrats have the game figured out. We don't. These Democrat communists are evil, but they're not stupid. They don't want Trump supporters to abandon him, but rather they want Trump supporters to keep supporting him. And then when they lock him up, your vote is wasted. Toast. Bye-bye. That's the bigger plan and manipulation here. And when it comes to the next election, the most important election ever, it's a trap. But this is bigger than Trump. When this crap happens to Trump, the world knows about it. He has a platform to fight back and resources to go to legal war. But what happens when average Americans are swept up in something like this? When the government shows up at your door accusing you of something you didn't do? This stuff matters, and it's going to matter long after the 2024 election. But how do we fix it if we don't win? See, that's the rock and hard place Republicans are wedged in. If we get behind a man that they lock up and we lose, then what? What happens? We just keep doing this? I'm tired, you're tired, this is absolutely exhausting. But here with his take as host of Mike Crispy, unafraid, Mike Crispy, 
All right, Mike. So top line thoughts on indictment number one, two, three, four. What are your thoughts? Well, Tommy, the indictments have continued to get more theatrical and bizarre by the minute. I mean, I think everybody knows this has been a lead up. The first one with Stormy Daniels was a nothing burger. Everyone kind of laughed at it. And now we have Fonnie Willis, who is the most depraved, mentally ill of all the prosecutors, getting this pomp and circumstance. They're going to have them all coming into the Fulton County Jail. They're going to take the mug shots. They just want to create this drumbeat that at this point doesn't even look like the appearance is fair. They don't care. It's throw as much garbage at the wall, see what sticks in an effort to prevent Donald Trump from being the president. And you know what, Tommy? I don't even put it past them trying to lock up Trump before the election if he talks. You had the judge who was saying that if he talks and tampers the jury, he might go to jail. So I put nothing past these people. They're depraved. It's only gotten worse and worse. And Fonnie Willis is the worst of them all. Uh, Fonnie, Fanny, whatever the hell we want to call her. You know, she's got quite the track record um, going after young thug and Donald Trump. So she sounds like the making of a reality show, which is quite frankly, probably what she envisions for herself. She wants to be a celebrity. We know this about her. And I think it also reiterates how important these state and local elections are, these activist DA races that people don't pay enough attention to, uh, oftentimes Soros funded. You know, we spend so much time talking about a general election, a national election in 2024, but we oftentimes forget about these little elections along the way that cause problems like we're seeing right now. But I also want to get your thoughts um, on that so-called fictitious indictment that they posted earlier in the day on Monday. You know, the clerk saying that they hit save or send instead of save, but miraculously, it looked almost identical, if not identical, to the actual indictment that was unsealed and released. So what do you think uh, happened with all of that? <laughs> I, I think it's amazing that these people have the media behind them, that they don't even have to act. They don't even have to have a good cover-up. Obviously, they did the indictment at 11 o'clock p.m. the other day because they know they messed up. Again, these aren't smart people. So they made a huge mistake. They made the decision to indict him before the grand jury voted. It's a sloppy process purported by sloppy people. And then they, the cover-up was, oh, you know, this was a template that we were testing out for a big indictment. We were testing loading it system. But the template had all of the Donald Trump charges verbatim on it and the case number at the top. And they said, no, no, it wasn't legit because it wasn't signed and stamped by the office. It is such a joke, Tommy. So that's why they had to do it at 11 o'clock at night. They knew it was bad. And then they know they have the media behind them so big time that they don't even have to, they don't even have to pretend like it's legitimate. They don't even have to have a good excuse. They can just give you that garbage rationale and then just keep going on and you know, say, oh, we're going to lock them up, mugshots coming, and just continue the circus and the spectacle, which is what they ultimately want. You're right. They're shameless with it. And, you know, half the country is already deeply embedded in at least five conspiracy theories at this point on everything. So when they do something like this, this doesn't really instill a lot of confidence in the people that they can trust the process. When you put something up, you call it fictitious. You've got cameras everywhere. You've got the judge cracking jokes. I mean, it's fodder for television and reality television, but it doesn't really feel like a legitimate process and a fair and legal way to go about all of this. But I'm wondering your take on this. Donald Trump's not the only person named in this indictment. We know a lot of people swept up in this, one including uh, Jenna Ellis. Now, reportedly, the Trump campaign is not going to help her out at all because she has voice support for Ron DeSantis. 
Do you think that that is appropriate, fair, a good thing to do? Well, I mean, Jenna Ellis has obviously been against Donald Trump. I think she's had quite a spiral. Um, I think what she's been doing is just petty and below the belt. So, you know, I can understand why they don't want to help her. There's a lot of resources that are going to be needed for a lot of people who didn't really do anything wrong. I mean, they were asking for phone numbers and they were telling people to watch television. So obviously they use lawfare. They want to drain the bank accounts of people. Um, and Jenna Ellis hopping off the ship to Ron DeSantis. Obviously, that's a sinking ship. And she's going to have to fend for herself. But Jenna Ellis's indictment shows you that even if you bend the knee to the establishment, they'll still come for you. They'll still punish you. They'll still make an example out of you. So it's unfortunate for Jenna Ellis. Um, but there's a lot of crimes, a lot of people, a lot of legal bills. That's what these people want. A big, tangled mess, Tommy. True. I agree with you on that front. But also... These RICO charges, that's notoriously used for, for mobsters. And part of the reason they sweep up a lot yeah. of people in these indictments is because they're hoping someone's going to talk and really probably go after the one we all know they want to go after, which is Donald Trump. So do you think that there is any risk or fear there that one of these people is going to come out against Donald Trump to save themselves? Is that something that you see happening? Well, it's certainly possible. It's probably what the intention is. You know, they want to break these people. It's what they tried to do with people like General Flynn, people like Roger Stone, all these people who they politically persecute. And they say, listen, you just come out against Donald Trump. You become the star witness and we'll let you off the hook. So you've mentioned the mob reference a couple of times. And it is kind of funny because that's exactly what's going on here. They're kind of turning it into a mob movie spectacle. And they're using RICO charges against the guy that invented RICO, Rudy Giuliani. So it is just utterly ridiculous, but that's why they're indicting 18 people. And the reason why the last indictment is the one with 18 people is because they were saving this one for last because it's the most bizarre of them all. It's all a stage. It's all pre-planned um, indictment one, two, three, four. We all saw this coming. Um, and unfortunately, their plan is to, I think, try to lock him up or put him behind bars if he talks. Everybody's threatening him. So I think, Tommy, they just want a mess, people to turn against each other. I hope that the America First base, I think they will stick together. And Donald Trump is on his way to a resounding reelection. I mean, they can't stop him now. He's up big time in the polls. So there's a few things I want to dive into. You know, speaking of all the people that are mentioned in this indictment, I'm quite frankly surprised that the my pillow guy isn't in this too. Um, you know, they really go after anybody and everybody, especially some of these counts here, like telling people to watch One America News Network. Um, it is laughable. I agree with you on that front. However, I do get a sense that you would vote for Donald Trump regardless if he's indicted five times, six times, seven times, eight times, if he is behind bars when the general election occurs. Uh, is that fair to say that you are all in 100 percent? 100 percent. I mean, I think this goes to show you the reason that they're coming after him is because he's surging. If he wasn't running, they wouldn't go after him. You know, you rolled that really good clip at the beginning of all the Democrats talking about stolen elections and illegitimate elections. So the public knows on its face that this is garbage. And the public knows that this is happening because Donald Trump's campaign, really his last campaign, his last you know stab here um, to take the country back. Everyone knows it's the last chance that we have, I believe, and many people believe, to have a real populist America first leader back in the White House. I think that people like myself know that Ron DeSantis is not going to be that guy. Any of the Republicans on the bench, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, they're not going to be those people. So I actually think Donald Trump has only gained steam here. And yes, I would support him no matter what. And if they have the audacity 
to lock him up and make him like a political prisoner, like a third world. I think a lot of people would think it's kind of cool to vote for a political prisoner, but it just goes to show you, Tommy, just how lost our system is when we even need to have these conversations. It's really, really unbelievable. It is, but there's part of me that also feels like, as I mentioned in my open there, that this is a trap, you know, that they want to circle the wagons around Donald Trump for his supporters to to circle the wagons, surge in the polls, take the nomination, and then you're either going to have somebody that's locked up or you're going to have somebody that's campaigning for the presidency uh, amidst four indictments and cases and legal proceedings. Now, I'm wondering what you think about this. Um, Donald Trump's biggest thing is that he won in 2020, right? So that is his premise. He's standing behind it. He won in 2020. So why then, even if it's our nominee, even if he goes into a general election, whether he's behind bars or not, what makes you think and every other Trump supporter out there think that this time is going to be different, that somehow this one isn't going to be rigged? Because by the looks of things, things have only gotten worse in the last four years. So why is this time going to be the time that he gets back in the White House if everything's rigged? It really is a great question, Tommy. And it's something that I think that all conservatives need to take a look at. People go, oh, we're going to win it this time. But how? You make a very good point. Now, I think there's a couple things at play here. I think if you look at the independent voters, the independent voting bloc has shifted towards Trump's favor, I think, in big ways. If you look at the polling among independents, Trump has gone up. If you obviously look at the factors that play with Joe Biden, people said, oh, he's going to be a you know white moderate face taking us our country back to the old days where there's civility. I think a lot of people out, that, out there that were objective who thought that, I think they totally regret that decision now. So I think on its face, Trump is going to pick up voters in that respect. Mike, I also I think that though, Republicans are going to be. Yeah, I have to yeah, ask yeah, you about yeah. this because when we look at the polls, you're right. Donald Trump is absolutely clobbering all the other Republicans. But when you look at the matchups between Joe Biden, who is essentially a vegetable right now and you know legit vegetable on the beach, the polls are basically that they are in a dead heat neck and neck. So when I hear you say that he's gaining in the polls, he's really not. He's still neck and neck. And this is at this point. So I'm very concerned. Maybe he can beat Joe Biden right now. It's still a dead heat. That doesn't make me comfortable heading into 2024. But what if they replace Joe Biden with a Gavin Newsom? Then you don't have the vegetable argument anymore. I'm very concerned about this. I don't know if it makes me feel better going into an election saying, oh, you know, there it's a dead heat neck and neck with the communists from California and Donald Trump who might be behind bars. It feels like a, a really anxiety-inducing place for us to be in. Many states out there passed election integrity measures, which I think are are in its whole good. Um, and I think whether they replace him with, or replace Joe Biden with Newsom, or they replace him with Michelle Obama, um, I think that Donald Trump is only gonna just continue in popularity um, with what we see. And I think that people see, you know, the judge, uh, in the case in D.C., Obama donor, the history there. And then they look yeah. at Fonnie Willis, Black Panther, having these things with Atlanta gang bangers. So, I mean, people look at it and they go, you know, that's just not right. And I think that there are many people out there that wouldn't even necessarily be Trump supporters, but they're seeing what's going on and saying, wow, that's just like broken. So I'm going to now support Trump when I didn't support him. That's what I hear from a lot of people. I think they're overplaying their hand because of the hysteria. And I do believe uh, that they know Trump's going to be the nominee. So they just want to beat him up as much as they can, um, and then put him on trial after he gets the nomination before the election. I believe that's the plan. I think they think that's their best hope. Um, but you're right. It is uncharted waters because yeah. they'll replace him, and it'll be the only major party nominee who's going to be on trial. It's an unbelievable situation that we're in right now in our country. It makes me uh, very nervous. Last thing I want to ask you real quick. 
the debate next week. Uh, Donald Trump has said he's not going to show up. So two parts of the question. Do you think he's going to show up? And if he doesn't show up, do you think that's a mistake? Um, I don't think he's going to show up. I hear from people associated with the campaign. He will not be there. I personally think he should do a forum with Tucker Carlson if he'll do it, answer the hard questions. That's what I think he should do. Um, and I don't think it's a mistake because right now, I mean, what's going to happen? Chris Christie, who's a disingenuous criminal, is going to try to beat up on him. Asa Hutchinson, all these people who have to do a gift card scam to even get in the debate and get the 40,000 <laughs> donors. Um, it, it serves no purpose for them, uh, for maybe Donald not, Trump to take the stage with him. them. So I think he's making the right move. See, now yeah. listen, I personally hope he doesn't show up because I would like to have a real conversation about the other candidates and their policies for the future of this country. And if it's Donald Trump there, it's just going to be a pile on on Trump and it's going to be about Trump. And I don't want that because I think we need to have discussions that are outside of Trump and the indictments. But I also think that there's another reason he's not showing up. And I personally think that he doesn't want to have to answer, especially to Ron DeSantis, about COVID. I don't think he wants to answer about pushing the jab. I don't think he wants to answer about pretty much putting Fauci on a pedestal. I don't think he wants to face DeSantis on that because when it comes to his base, that might be his only weak spot. That might be the only spot where DeSantis can really get in there and inflict some real damage. So I think at some point he's going to have to deal with it. But up until now, he's been able to focus on him and only him and not his record in 2020 when it came to the pandemic. Uh, yeah, I think you're totally right. I do think that Donald Trump has answers for that. I think that Ron DeSantis has run on that, but I think as the record becomes more clear, I think you'll see that Ron DeSantis did initial me measures that were very similar to Donald Trump, so I would almost call it a draw. You remember Ron DeSantis vaccinated that 100-year-old veteran on live TV, and then he died like a couple months later. So, I mean, I think Donald Trump has answers for that. Um, I think they should have the conversation and debate at some point, but I think that Trump will be able to handle that just fine. And Tommy, the last thing, I do think that even though Trump won't be there, my prediction is, is that 80% of the airtime is them all talking about Donald Trump anyway. So I would love to see an issues conversation, but I just think the nature of these candidates, the nature of politics, I think it's going to be a Trump fest, whether he's there or whether he's not there, Tommy. Yeah, I think to, to some regard, it's going to be that. But boy, I just hope we can talk about some policy because, you know, I think it's important to talk about indictments, but I also think that the American people are struggling right now and we need to focus a little bit on that and not take all the air out of the room on indictments one through four. But that's just my personal take. Mike, I really appreciate you being here and we'll talk to you after the debate. Thank you very much, Tommy. Appreciate you having me on. All right, moving on. This week marks the two-year anniversary of the disastrous and deadly Afghanistan withdrawal, the one Joe Biden and pals still call an extraordinary success as if we are stupid. General Miller and General McKenzie will be able to do so in a safe, orderly, and effective way. We'll not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it, we'll do it responsibly, deliberately, and safely. The likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. Your own intelligence community has assessed that the Afghan government will likely collapse. That is not true. They clearly have the capacity to sustain the government in place. <laughs> uh, I guess the death of 13 American service members, 11 of whom were still in preschool on 9-11, is success to Joe. Or maybe Afghani citizens cling to the side of airplanes trying to escape the Taliban is what Joe calls a job well done. But in reality, it was a disaster and a horrific failure of leadership. Women and children were trampled to death outside of the gates of the Kabul airfield. 
Desperate Afghans fell from the landing gear of departing planes. Taliban fighters whipped and humiliated U.S. civilians trying to access the few square miles still controlled by American forces. Afghan interpreters abandoned and left at the mercy of the Taliban after risking their lives alongside American troops for years. My next guest literally wrote the book on all of that. Journalist and investigator Jerry Dunleavy and former Army Captain James Hassan are the co-authors of Kabul, the untold story of Biden's fiasco and the American warriors who fought to the end. And Jerry joins me now. Jerry, thank you so much for joining me. Congratulations on the book. You know, here we are two years after this horrific disaster, this horror show, as you guys described it. Um, this book, I think, is going to be a very inconvenient truth for the Biden administration and many Democrats who are hoping that the American people forgot about the Afghanistan withdrawal. So going into the book and everything that you did to, to write this book, the research that you did, what did you write about that the American people didn't see on their news station when this all happened two years ago? Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And, you know, the book is uh, Kabul. Everyone should uh, buy it and buy it online, buy it at bookstores. But, you know, there are a lot of things that we uncovered here that I think are going to really shock people. Probably the most um, egregious stuff is the things that we found out about what it was like for our service members um, who had to uh, evacuate um, Afghan allies and Americans who the Biden administration had stranded and had to do that from a tiny airport with a country completely controlled by the Taliban and with security being provided by the Taliban. The Taliban was turning Americans away from the gates, was beating Americans, was beating our Afghan allies, and was even killing Afghans right in front of our Marines, and they were not allowed to engage and not allowed to stop the Taliban. Also important to keep in mind here is that, uh, you know, we were able to determine who we believe the suicide bomber was. His name is Abdul Rahman Aligari, and he was freed from Bagram prison by the Taliban after they took Bagram over. And keep in mind, remember, the Biden administration decided to close Bagram in July of 2021 a terrible decision that made the evacuation much more dangerous, but also gave the Taliban the opportunity to take Bagram uh, two years ago yesterday, in fact. And the first thing that they did was they freed thousands of ISIS-K prisoners from that prison, as well as dozens of members of Al-Qaeda, hundreds of Taliban fighters. And one of those ISIS-K prisoners um, was the one who carried out the Abigate bombing that took the lives of 13 Americans, wounded dozens of Americans, and killed 200 Afghan allies didn't have to happen. And it could have been, could have been as simple as maintaining Bagram to run a safe evacuation. And as we now know, to make sure that those uh, terrorists that were kept there didn't get freed so that they could attack us. I think this is also uh, just a difficult conversation to have with partisan folks because everybody sees it through the lens of partisanship and we really shouldn't. So, you know, I think that most of the American people, uh, whether they're on the left or the right, agree that we needed to get out of Afghanistan. I don't think anybody wanted to see an endless war uh, continue endlessly. I think that getting out was the right move. We know Trump had negotiated this withdrawal and Trump was behind the withdrawal. It's the way that it went down and the chaos and the cluster that ensued. And then also this administration not taking responsibility for the cluster that ensued, that it was so enraging to people. Because as you mentioned, these 13 Americans did 
didn't have to die. We didn't have to have people clinging to departing airplanes trying to save their lives. We didn't have to have it like this. And our nation, our sophisticated military, our, our sophisticated apparatus for doing this, it, you know, there's just no reason why we couldn't have done this better through no fault of our service members, by the way, but through those that coordinated and planned this very poorly. But I think also the, the part that doesn't sit well, and I know that you write about it in your book, is the way that Joe Biden personally interacted with the family members of those fallen service members. I know that you write that he didn't refer to them by their names, just your son or daughter. He talked about his own son for much of the time, making it about himself. What else can you tell my viewers about some of those inside conversations? Yeah. So, you know, in the course of the book, I, I had the, the opportunity and really the honor to talk to a number of the Gold Star families. And, you know, pretty much all of them had very similar stories about what their interactions with President Biden were. Of course, we all saw the photographs and the videos of how President Biden acted during the dignified transfer ceremony at Dover, where he kept checking his watch over and over and over again. Um, numerous times you know there's pictures and videos of him doing it multiple times the family members some of them insist that it was many 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 times but you know he clearly was checking his watch he wasn't that interested also they also shared very similar stories about their uh, meeting with him in in person and in private where uh you know he he generally didn't know the name of their service member um their son or daughter whose life had been lost and he would just bring up, you know, basically, I know what you're going through um, because my son, Bo, uh, you know, died as well. And he was in the military and he died as well. Now, look, the, the death of Joe Biden's son, Bo, is obviously tragic, um, but he died of, of, of brain cancer in 2015, many years after serving um, in Iraq. He, he didn't die in combat and he certainly didn't die as these family members' uh, children died um, in an operation that was largely the fault of the commander-in-chief. Um, and so, you know, they, they have those stories, and they're, I think that they just show that President Biden was kind of trying to make it all about himself. And to your point about how unnecessary all of this was and doing a withdrawal the right way, you know, if the U.S. decided that we were going to withdraw from Afghanistan, we had the Doha Agreement, right? And I, we don't really try to whitewash that. The, the Doha Agreement was a flawed agreement with the Taliban. However, there were conditions in that agreement, um, and the Taliban was not meeting them, especially the agreement that the Taliban had related to al-Qaeda. The Taliban never broke its alliance with al-Qaeda, not before 9-11, not after 9-11, not after 20 years of war. But President Biden basically tried to downplay that and tried to downplay Al-Qaeda's continued presence and continued alliance with the Taliban. So, you know, we decided to do a conditionless withdrawal and I think, you know, basically an unconditional surrender. And we didn't, uh, you know, do the basic things we needed to do. Have a plan about how to get Americans out have a plan about how to get the tens of thousands of Afghan allies, the specific people who had worked alongside our military as interpreters and that sort of thing over two decades. No real plan about how, how to get them out. No plan about how to keep the Afghan military on the field fighting at least long enough to keep the Taliban at bay so that we could get our Americans and our Afghan allies out. Of course, closing Bagram, a tragic mistake 
in so many different ways. And, and finally, I'll just note, when President Biden announced this withdrawal on April 14, 2021, he decided to pick as the final withdrawal date, September 11, 2021, the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. Not a strategic date, a political date. He wanted some sort of political win, political victory, whatever. But it was deeply bizarre, I think, to everybody when he picked that date. But here's why it was really bad, not just because it was a date picked for political reasons, but that date was in the middle of the Afghan fighting season, which we've known for 20 years. Spring to summer is when the fighting season gets tough, when the Taliban is able to be on the move. And as U.S. troops withdrew on President Biden's orders from April, May, June, July, August, as U.S. troops withdrew, the Afghan military collapsed under the Taliban onslaught and the Taliban took the country. And this withdrawal, if we were going to do it, we could have done it at a time and place of our choosing at a, when it would have made sense, when we had worked out how we were going to do this safely and effectively to get Americans out and then make sure that our troops were safe. And we didn't do it. And by we, I really mean, ultimately, this is at the defeat of President Joe Biden, because I think a lot of time President Biden's age gets brought up his fitness for office, whether he's making all the decisions in the White House. And I often think there's probably something to those critiques, but I can tell you from writing from writing this book that this decision, Afghanistan and the withdrawal, this was Joe Biden from top to bottom, front center. This was him, and this is ultimately his responsibility and his fault. And it was the beginning of when the American people started to lose confidence in this administration, and rightfully so. I think it's something that they don't like to talk about, something that they don't like to revisit. They're hoping that people would forget. But your book reminds people, brings them the true story, not from a partisan lens, but from a lens of the United States of America, from freedom, from those who fought for 20 years for freedom for all. That's the lens that your book is written through, and the family members that lost their loved ones in a needless way. So I want to thank you for writing the book, for everything that you did, for exposing it, bringing it, bringing it to the American people. The book is out now. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for being here, and God bless everything you do. Thank you, Tommy. Everyone should read Cobble. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right, and my final thoughts are next. Joe Biden announces a whopping seven whole hundred bucks per household to Maui wildfire victims. That's roughly two million bucks total and a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what we sent over to prop up Ukraine. What a freaking joke. It's time for final thoughts. So tragically, the death toll continues to rise in Maui as officials struggle to even identify the charred remains of our fellow Americans in Lahaina. But don't worry, Joe and his Bidenomics are going to save the day. I mean, he won't actually go there. He prefers to spend his presidency lounging on beaches that aren't on fire. But he has vowed to send a whole 700 bucks per household to those impacted by the wildfires. 700 whole dollars, y'all. Wow. To put that in perspective, you can steal $250 more than that per day in California, and your offense will still be classified as a misdemeanor and treated like a parking ticket. So if you add up the population of Lahaina Maui, the rough total Joe is willing to allocate to these people who lost everything is about $2 bucks. 
So here's more perspective for you. We've sent $113 billion to Ukraine and counting, including about $20 billion to help Ukraine pay government employees, pay out pension obligations, and operate hospitals. I wonder why Joe is so cheap with Maui. Oh, wait, I don't wonder. It's obvious. He's not worried about their votes, and they aren't going to be paying him to talk about the weather over speakerphone or pay out his family in any way. So fudge it. He doesn't care. The same way he doesn't care about the people in East Palestine, Ohio. They can't enrich him or his family, and he doesn't need their votes. So again, Joe says, fudge it. Is it starting to make sense now, people? The government doesn't really care about you. They want your land, your food supply, your kids, and your freedom, but they don't give a rat's ass about you. You're nothing to them. You're a number, a mail-in vote, a pawn, and that's it. You work your fingers to the bone and pay taxes so that lazy asses, illegal aliens, and former comedians in foreign countries can live high on the hog while you suck up the crumbs left over. The people of Maui burn to death. The people of East Palestine, Ohio, will probably have legs growing out of their ears at some point. Our veterans are homeless on park benches. Our senior citizens are forced out of their homes due to rising housing costs. And the government sends your damn money to Ukraine. And you keep sending them back to Washington, D.C. to do it again. Wake up, people. The government isn't your savior, so stop begging it to get bigger. Those are my final thoughts. Be sure to catch the entire show as well as exclusive content on our OutKick YouTube channel from Nashville. God bless. Take care.